All right, you can put your hymnals down and pick up your Bibles. Turn to the sermon text this morning, which is John 14. John 14, verses 15 to 31. Hear now the word of the Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Thus ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ that we celebrate every Lord's Day. Lord, knowing that because he lives, we too shall live. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your word uh, in which the truths of Christ have been recorded for us, that we too may believe that he is the Son of God and through believing may have life in his name. Lord, we pray now that as your word is proclaimed, we pray that you would do what only you can Lord, that you would grant uh, by your Spirit that eyes would be opened, that ears would be opened, that hearts would be willing to receive. Lord, we pray that you would bless the preaching, the proclamation of your word. Lord, may it go forth to do far abundantly more uh, than what we could ask or imagine. Lord, may you be glorified through this preaching of your word. May it be your truth that is said and nothing else. Lord, I pray that you would bless us and help us to remove all distractions, all hindrances, all the things that are burdening us. May they be moved from our minds uh, so that we be able to focus on you and receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So we're picking up again with our series in John, picking up where we left off in chapter 14. Uh, We are in a section that we had been looking forward to in John uh, for its depth and its richness, uh, a section that really reveals to us the heart of our Savior. For we are now in the upper room with Jesus on the night that he would be betrayed. Jesus knows that he's leaving and he is seeking to prepare his disciples for his departure. He has been giving them instructions on how they are to live once he is gone. He has been comforting them, encouraging them, giving them reasons as to why they must not let their hearts be troubled. In our text this morning, we see more of both of these, both instructions for how his followers are to live, as well as more promises of additional comfort making this another extremely relevant text to us. Now, what follows here ties directly to what has become before. I know we've been breaking this up, but remember, this was all one dialogue, one discussion of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus had just spoken of his disciples doing greater things than what he did, which then anticipates the need for enabling power. Basically, how will we do greater things? Jesus has declared that he is leaving, but as we'll see, he will still be with them in a way that he himself will later declare to be even better than having him with us here in the flesh. And so the theme of loving Christ and obeying him, which we'll unpack in this section, uh, is not disconnected from what came before, but rather this is of one accord with the idea of asking things in his name in prayer. Uh, We saw that in the last section, and as D.A. Carson notes, none of the promised fruitfulness will come to those who think they can manipulate the exalted Christ or use him for their own ends. So Jesus has demonstrated his love for his own. He has commanded them as the fledgling new covenant community to love one another even as he has loved them. And now Jesus turns to another necessary element for all those in the new covenant community. And that is this, love for him. Look with me to verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is how love for me will be expressed. You will keep my commandments. You will obey. You will be a doer of my word and not a hearer only. Now, this connection between love for Christ and obedience to him is a major theme of this section, and it comes up repeatedly in John's writings. I think we can safely assume that this evening spent with the Lord Jesus had a profound impact on the Apostle John. D.A. Carson writes that it approaches the level of definition, this connection between love for Christ and obedience to him. Now, 1 John 5, verse 3 John writes, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Right? So it seems according to John here, love for Christ, love for God is obedience. It, it approaches the level even of definition, as Carson puts it. Right? Keeping his commandments, keeping his word. You cannot divide these two, love for Christ and obedience to him. They go together. 
As Jesus says, if you have the one, the other will follow, right? As thunder follows lightning. Love for God, love for Christ will result in obedience to Christ. If it does not, then what you have is not love for Christ. Not as Christ defines it. Not as the Bible defines it. If you claimed to have love for Christ and it did not result in in obedience, then what you had was something else. A temporary excitement, perhaps. A warm feeling inside. But not true biblical love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, there are some groups out there who will try to divide uh, or, or separate having Christ as Lord and having him as Savior. They, they try to put a wedge between these two, believing that it's possible to have true saving faith in Jesus, but to not receive him also as Lord. So for these people, simply saying a prayer, filling out a card or whatever it is, they will say is enough to get you saved, right? You now have Christ as Savior and you'll go to heaven when you die. But you don't also need to have him as Lord. You don't need to become his disciple. Uh, So you can be saved, they'll say, but not have Christ as Lord. Perhaps not have love for him. Not obey his commandments. They'll claim no obedience can be said to be necessary in any way. In any way. But consider what the scriptures say. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Paul here pronounces a curse, an anathema, on anyone who has no love for the Lord, that, that's saying, in essence, let them be damned, right? Let them be accursed. Now, we must always be precise, especially on this topic. Uh, the ground of our acceptance before God is the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, which is received by grace alone through faith alone. And this actually does fit seamlessly with what we see here as Christ speaks of the necessity of obedience. And it fits when we understand that the scripture teaches that the kind of faith which God gives, the faith that is produced by a new nature, by the new birth, is not a dead faith, but a living faith. It is a faith that produces something, that produces action, that produces fruit. Those who have True faith, the kind that God gives and are therefore justified by God, credited with Christ's righteousness by faith, will also produce fruit. Love for God and obedience to his commands. So we see the scriptures do not allow us to separate having Christ as Lord and having him as Savior. As he himself says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. 
Now, there are others who will try to excuse their disobedience to God by saying, well, it's okay because God knows my heart. And what they usually mean by that is that they believe that they have some warm feelings toward God, right? some affection toward God, or they believe themselves to have noble intentions that nevertheless never quite get acted upon. These people, too, are trying to separate love and obedience, supposing they truly can have the one without the other. Jesus shatters this notion. Love will result in obedience. This will be the case for those who truly love me. They will be commandment keepers, commandment obeyers. Love for Christ will be expressed in action. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So then what does Christ mean when he speaks of his commandments? Uh, what, what specifically are we to obey? Now, this theme of obedience is repeated throughout the passage, and we get, a, I think, a bit of an explanation of what Christ means here. If you look down to verse 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. Verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And in verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my word, my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Christ's commandments, Christ's word. And he explains is not merely his word, but that of the Father who sent him. The implication is Christ's word has authority because it is the Father's word. His teaching is of one accord with the Father. Now this is relevant in our day as well, because there are some who will try to separate out Jesus' words from the rest of the scriptures. Some will even claim that there's contradiction between Jesus and Paul, or Jesus and the Old Testament. And so the, the idea that they will promote is that Jesus' words have more authority than the rest of Scripture, right? He is the one we are to follow. We are followers of Christ, not Moses. Or we are followers of Christ, not David. Or followers of Christ, not Isaiah, Peter, or Paul. But this is seeking to bring division where there is none, where there ought to be none. For if you just took Jesus' words at face value, right, believing everything that Jesus himself taught, you will end up believing that the Old Testament is the word of the true and living God. Right? Remember, when the Jews tried to trap Jesus in his words, he challenged them and said, Have you not read what was said to you by God? Then he quoted the Old Testament. Right? Have you not read what was said to you by God? What is Jesus' view of the Old Testament? When scripture speaks, God speaks, right? When they would read Genesis, they were reading the very words of God to them. So you're in a little bit of a pickle here. If you were hoping to escape from the Old Testament by only claiming to follow what came from the mouth of Christ, well, you actually need to end up embracing the whole of the Old Testament scriptures as the word of God. Right? If you're going to follow 
if you're going to try to follow only Jesus' teachings, well, then you have to end up believing what he said about the rest of Scripture. You end up having to take Jesus' view of Scripture. So to obey Jesus' commands, then, is to embrace the entirety of special revelation from God. Right? Jesus' words, he says, have authority because they are not merely his words, but are the words of the Father. Right? So whatever God has given is what we must obey, which is to say all of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for a proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. So Christian, do you love Christ? Do you love God? Do you obey his commandments? Do you seek to order your life in its entirety according to everything that God himself has ordained? Do you seek to know the scriptures so that you may know how to live in a way that will please God? It is very difficult to obey Christ's commands if you don't know what they are. Amen? And the fact is, in our day and age, you have absolutely no excuse for ignorance. Right? There were generations where people did not have access to the scriptures. Right? We are not living in those times. By the grace of God, his word has been made readily available. If you do not have a Bible, it is not hard to get one. You can get them for cheap. You can find them for free. I think we have one on our back table for free. Anyone who needs a Bible. You can download scripture on your phone. You can access it online. You can find free apps with audio Bibles. They'll even read it to you. Nobody in this room can use ignorance of God's will as an excuse for disobedience. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Brothers and sisters, may our love for Christ be expressed through our pursuit of his will, seeking out what it is that he desires of us and seeking to live according to it in its entirety. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, continuing on, and I will ask my Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus here promises the Holy Spirit. Now again, Jesus has said he is leaving, but as we've seen, he has been encouraging his disciples to not let their hearts be troubled. Right? Don't let this bother you. Don't uh, fall into the trap of sinful fear. But firstly, he encouraged them to take comfort in the fact that he was going to prepare a place for them. Right? In my father's house, 
There are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you, to open up the way to the Father. He has promised as well that if he's going to do this, that he will also return and bring them to himself so that where he is, there they may be also. In these things, they were to take comfort. And as we saw last week, the comfort that Jesus offers us is not only the hope of an eternal future, right? something that's far off still for many of us, but Jesus promises help here and now, promising to answer the prayers of his, that his disciples would bring in his name. And here we come to what is another major heading, another major reason as to why the disciples need not let their hearts be troubled. And so to apply it to our situation, this is another major reason or another major way that we can battle against anxiety. Jesus is leaving them, but he is not abandoning them. He is not leaving them as orphans. He is going to send them another helper, an advocate, a strengthener. Now the term another is important, right? To this point in the disciples' lives, uh, as they've been following Christ around, Jesus has been their helper, their encourager, their strengthener. Now he has said he is leaving, but that he will ask the Father who will send another helper. Jesus declares he will not leave them as orphans. They're not being left without support. But we see rather the one who comes will pick up the role that Christ had been performing for his disciples. The disciples are troubled. Jesus is leaving. We're losing our helper. But Jesus promises another helper. The spirit of truth. So we see this is another reason for comfort. Not only at a far off time in the future, but here and now in this life, Christ promises the Holy Spirit to his followers. This is an unfathomable blessing. In an absolutely stunning statement, Jesus will later say to his disciples, that it is to their advantage that he goes away. John 16, verse 7, Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Can you wrap your minds around that? I don't know about you, but I can't think of terribly many things that I would rather have than to have Jesus with me here in the flesh. Right? To, to have him uh, physically here, to see him, to talk to him, to touch him, to ask him questions, to hear him teach and instruct and encourage. Right? That would be amazing. Right? This is one of the things we look forward to as we get to go uh, to heaven is the presence, the physical presence of Christ. 
So for the Christian, we're thinking, what could possibly be better than having Christ with us in the flesh? Jesus himself says, this is better than having him in person. It is to your advantage that I leave. Right? So even better than having him with us, Jesus says, is having the Holy Spirit. Having the Holy Spirit. This is a blessing given to every true Christian. Romans 8, 9 says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, that you do not belong to him. So if you are in Christ, this means that what you have been given in the Holy Spirit is a greater blessing than having Jesus with you here in the flesh. That is mind-blowing. So we ask, well, how could this be? Right? How, how, could that how could anything possibly be better than having Jesus here with us? Let us consider firstly what Christ says about the Spirit in this text. Verse 17, Jesus says that the Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. Now the strength and help and encouragement that Christ offered to his disciples while he was with them in the flesh was still external to them. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will be inside us, right? Dwelling with us and in us. And so the encouragement, strength, and grace that he gives, therefore, will come straight to the heart, straight to the inner man. Next, we can understand how having the Spirit is better than having Christ with us because of the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Then in verse 23, he adds... If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So notice this, the promise of the coming of the Spirit is the promise that both Christ and his Father will come and make their home with the believer. Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of Christ. In Matthew 10, the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of the Father. And so once again, we see Scripture forces us into the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God who has eternally existed in three co-equal persons who are clearly distinguished from one another. And yet so united that if you have known the Son, you know the Father. If you have the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, this is the Father and the Son dwelling with you, making their home in you. So here's the next way we can understand that having the Spirit in us is better than having Christ with us in the flesh. And that is, Jesus is not leaving his disciples with a stranger, but rather, God, the Holy Spirit, the eternal third person of the Godhead will be with them. This is the spirit of the Father and the spirit of Christ. 
Jesus is with us. So although Jesus is leaving, although he is returning to the Father, he is sending the Holy Spirit who will dwell with them and in them. Christ is leaving but will not leave them as orphans. He will come back to them both through the Holy Spirit, through whom he will make his home with us. But even before the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, quite literally, Jesus would come back to his disciples. He would return from the dead to live with them for a time. Verse 19. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So Jesus says, the world will not see him anymore. Even after his resurrection, Jesus did not show himself to the world. The largest single group that was reported to have seen him was around 500 people. 1 Corinthians 15, 6. The world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So we have two things that are linked to the resurrection in these verses. One is that on that day, Jesus says, you will know. On that day, you will know. We've seen the disciples have not yet come to a full understanding of who Jesus was or what he came to accomplish. But Jesus says, on that day, namely, after he is risen from the dead, then they will understand. The resurrection will bring clarity. God's plans, and therefore the identity of Christ, will be made more fully manifest through his resurrection. The other thing that is linked to Christ's resurrection, Jesus says, is their life. Because I live, you too shall live. And so in the immediate context, this life he promises them appears to be connected to the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because he lives, they too will live. This will be true both in this life and in the life to come. Christ's resurrection is connected to his ascension, right? If he doesn't rise from the dead, he cannot ascend to the right hand of the Father and then ask him to send the Spirit. And so it is only through the work of the Spirit in us that we are made spiritually alive. And in the life to come, we will be made alive because it is the Spirit of God who will raise us from the dead. Romans 8, 9 to 11 You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is is life because of righteousness. Now catch this part. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And all of this is dependent upon Christ completing his work of redemption, rising from the dead, and returning to the Father, 
whom he will ask to send the Spirit. Because I live, you too shall live. Because I live, I will send you the Spirit. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. Jesus is called the first fruits from the dead. Well, that only makes sense to speak of first fruits if you have a greater harvest yet to come. The Spirit of God is our deposit, the guarantee, the reminder that Christ lives. And Scripture tells us that if that same Spirit who raised Christ is dwelling in us, that he will raise us just as Christ was raised. Because he lives, we too shall live. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So Jesus here describes what it looks like to be his follower. At this point, he is not saying that we must keep his commandments in order to earn the father's love. Rather, Jesus is describing the relationship between his followers, the Father, and himself. Right? This is what is true of all Christians. Um, his followers have his commandments. Right? They know them, they understand them, and they keep them out of their love for him. Those who love Christ, Jesus says, are loved by the Father, and they are loved by him. And Jesus says he will manifest himself to them. Now to manifest is to show, uh, to put on display. Jesus gets a question from Judas. Now this is not Judas Iscariot, but a different Judas, uh, also called Thaddeus in the other Gospels. He asks how Jesus will manifest himself to them, but not to the world. Jesus answers, that he and the Father will come and make their home in those who love him. And this, although it's not stated, is presumably through the presence of the Spirit. <clears throat> now in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Paul asks a rhetorical question. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now there are certain implications which follow from this reality. We know that God no longer has an inanimate building as his dwelling place on earth. There is no gold-covered temple. There is no holy of holies in the inner chamber of the tabernacle. Rather, now, his dwelling is with his people. Brothers and sisters, 
you who are in Christ, you are the dwelling place of God. You are the place where God makes his home on earth, where the Father and the Son come and make their home with you through the presence of the Spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Certain things flow from that reality. You must be holy. Your heart must be made into a fit dwelling place for God. The temple of God must not be profaned. Right? If your body is a temple, the dwelling place of God, well, Paul applies it this way in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, your body is not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 13. Right? Your heart is not to be made the abode of sin, but of the Holy Spirit. Christ belongs on the throne of your heart. He must be uppermost in your affections. Do not usurp his place by serving sin. Your heart is not a temple made to serve Satan, to serve sin. Your heart is meant for God. You are meant for God. You are his temple, his home, his dwelling place. So brothers and sisters, root out the sin in your hearts. Root out the sin in your hearts. And this is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the roles, one of the functions that he performs for his people to sanctify us, to make us holy. Galatians 5 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. No unclean thing must enter the temple of God. No sinful thought, emotion, or desire must be permitted to remain in the temple of God. Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Are you prone to outbursts of anger? Do you yell at your kids, at your wife? Do you indulge lustful thoughts? Are you committing others, pardon me, committing adultery with others in your heart? Are you full of hate, envy, bitterness, selfishness? Then you are not guarding the temple. If these things have taken root, it is a sign that you have grown lax in your attitude towards sin. Sin has polluted your heart. The dwelling place of God has been profaned. You have not been battling sin as you ought to. Put those things to death. Walk by the Spirit. Follow his leading and his guiding as he works in you to make your heart a fit dwelling place for God. A place where the Father and the Son would feel at home. Let's continue on. <clears throat> These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So Jesus says that he has taught them while he was still with them. And we see that after he leaves, it will now be the Holy Spirit who takes this role. Right? They are losing their teacher, but the Holy Spirit will come and will teach them. So they will not be left alone to their faltering memories in regards to what Jesus did and said. But Jesus promises them help. The Spirit will bring these things to remembrance. The Spirit will also teach them all things. They will not be left on their own to try to make sense of everything that has happened, right? To make, try to make sense of all that Christ said and did and what it meant. But he promises the Spirit himself will teach them. He will explain to them so that they may come to a full and accurate understanding of the truth. Of Jesus Christ. And in God's kind providence, we have this recorded for us in the New Testament. Right? That's what it is. It's a reflection upon the meaning of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Not just invented by his disciples, but taught, instructed, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus then returns to the theme of his departure, and he challenges his disciples. Now, he's been showing them to this point some of the reasons for why they need not be troubled. Right? His departure will ensure that he will take them to be with him forever. That alone should have been cause for joy. And here Jesus turns the tables a little bit and challenges them. Right? Genuine love for Jesus would have found another reason for joy. It says, I am returning to the Father. The Father is greater than I. D.A. Carson comments, If Jesus' disciples truly loved him, they would be glad that he is returning to the Father. For he is returning to the sphere where he belongs. He is returning to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. To the place where the Father is undiminished in his glory, unquestionably greater than the Son, in his incarnate state. Close quote. So in other words, they ought to rejoice because Jesus' returning to the Father means that he is being exalted. And if they truly loved him, he says, they would rejoice in this. And so we see here is a great test of our love for Jesus. Those who love him must desire to see him exalted, right? To see him receive glory and honor and praise as he is due. Those who truly love Christ must have the attitude of John the Baptist, as was prayed this morning. He must increase. I must decrease. Carson continues, To this point, the disciples have responded emotionally, entirely according to their perception of their own gain or loss. If they had loved Jesus, 
they would have perceived that his departure to, to his own home was his gain and rejoiced with him at the prospect. As it is, their grief is an index of their self-centeredness, close quote. Continuing on. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So as he said with the betrayal of Judas, Jesus explains that he is telling his disciples these things before they happen, so that when they do come to pass, they may believe. What is about to occur in his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, did not catch Jesus off guard. As we've seen for some time in John, he set his face toward Jerusalem deliberately. He came here knowing full well what would happen. And he predicted all of it. And we see here, even the role of the devil in the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus was not a sign of defeat. It is, in fact, the very means by which the devil will soon be overthrown. Christ is going to go to the cross, not because the devil had a claim on him, but in obedience to the Father. The devil had no claim on Jesus. There was no charge that he could level against him. And so Christ goes to the cross, not because the devil had a claim on him, but rather to free us from the claim that the devil had on us. Christ is going to the cross where the Lord will lay on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. Christ is going to be made sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Christ will bear in himself the punishment due to our sin. Christ will bear the wrath of God in our place. In so doing, Christ will make propitiation. He was the sacrifice that takes away wrath. And so now, those accusations that the devil would make against the people of Christ will not stick. For he could cry out about you, guilty, guilty, and Christ answers, I bore that guilt. The claim that you had on him was atoned for by me. That is why Christ went to the cross. To redeem his people. To show the world that he loved the Father. And to fulfill the Father's will that he would accomplish redemption. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Ultimately, the peace that Christ offers to his disciples 
comes through his own death and resurrection. He is going to make a way for them to the Father. He will die and rise again and ascend to the Father. He promises to come back and bring his disciples to himself. He promises to answer their prayers. And as we've seen this morning, another amazing reason for peace to their troubled hearts is that he promises to give them the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let this bring you peace. The amazing hope of eternal life that we have, this hope for our future, is not the only hope, the only comfort that God gives us. We have so many amazing blessings purchased for Christ, pardon me, by Christ, for all who are in him. If you are in Christ, you are the dwelling place of God. God makes his home with you. Let this bring you peace if you struggle with anxiety. If you're struggling with sinful fear, may this be reason, something you would preach to your heart so that you would not give in to sinful fear. God is always with you. You are never alone. The Spirit is with you. He is there as your helper, your encourager, your advocate. He dwells with you and in you. Let this bring you comfort, no matter how alone you might feel. Not only does God remember you, God is with you. And not just as a companion who can give encouragement from the outside, but as a comforter and encourager who can give grace and peace to your inner man. He gives grace to your troubled heart. Consider these blessings. We have the Holy Spirit. He is working in us to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Christ, to make our hearts a fit dwelling place for God. He is the one who caused you to be born again. He is the one who made you alive, though you were dead in transgression and sin. He is the one who drew you effectually to Christ. And that work that he has begun in you will be brought to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. He is convicting you of sin, giving you desires that are opposed to the desires of your flesh, Galatians 5.17. Desires to please God, desires to battle sin, desires to put sin to death, to truly love Christ and therefore obey his commandments. The Spirit intercedes for you in your prayers when you don't know what to pray, Romans 8.26. The Spirit teaches us, gives us insight and understanding into the things of God, which the natural man, that is the man without the Spirit, cannot receive, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The Spirit directs us to Christ. And so Christ may have been leaving his disciples, but he was not abandoning them. The Spirit would come as their helper, and he is here as our helper. According to Christ, that is a better situation for us than to have Christ with us in the flesh. May we grow in our love for God, 
our love for Christ, and appreciation for the amazing gift that we have in his spirit. Amen.